0: How do you heal even the attachment traumas that can happen early in your life, before you're born even, but that are affecting you in your adult life? Today, we're going to explore this question with one of the world's foremost experts on healing trauma, Peter Levine. But first, just a reminder that Relationship Alive is my offering to you to help you have the most successful relationships that you can have. If you're finding the show to be of benefit in your life or in the lives of those you love, please consider a donation to help ensure that we can continue in our mission. To choose something that feels right to you, just visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word SUPPORT to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And remember, every little bit counts. This week I'd like to thank Wafa, Marie, Timothy, Karina, Sylvia, David, Angie, and Anita. Thank you all so much for your generous support of Relationship Alive. Also, if you haven't downloaded it yet, please grab for free my top three relationship communication secrets. It's a free guide that's available to you to help you stay connected, no matter how challenging the conversation is that you need to have. To download the free guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And I am just about to release my Secrets of Relationship Communication course, so stay tuned for that. We have a Facebook community, the Relationship Alive community. If you are looking for a safe space to get support around relationship stuff with other people who listen to the Relationship Alive podcast, then join us. We have more than 3,000 people gathered on Facebook to help you. And if you have questions that aren't getting answered, then please email them to me. The best thing is if you record your voice or record a little video so I can use it in the podcast and send it to questions at relationshipalive.com. And every so often we're gonna feature your questions in episodes of the podcast. All right, I think that's it. Let us get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. As always, we are exploring both the relational skills and the inner healing that's required in order to show up fully in your life and in your relationships. Today, we are fortunate to have a return visit from none other than Peter Levine, one of the world's experts on healing trauma and also the creator of Somatic Experiencing, one of the world's foremost modalities on healing trauma of all kinds. This can be the big kinds of traumas that people think of, you know, with war and assault and things like that, or uh, it can be the smaller traumas that, that still have a huge impact on us. Things that happen in our childhood, things that happen in our day-to-day lives. So today in our conversation with Peter Levine, we're going to be talking about how our early attachment traumas Affect us in our adult lives and and what we can do about that to bring uh, more presence to our relationships. As always, we will have a detailed transcript of today's conversation, which you can get if you visit slash Levine 2. That's L E V I N E, as in Peter Levine, and then the number 2. Uh, Peter's also been on the show a couple other times, so if you if you check out episode 127, you can listen to us talking about resilience, or I used the kind of funny form of that word, resiliency. Uh, and uh, and way back in episode 29, we were talking about the again the effects of trauma on our lives and how to heal it. So we're we're building a comprehensive library here for you to help you get present and free your cells as, and your physiology, as well as your mind and your emotions, your mind-body-spirit from the pernicious effects of trauma on our lives. Uh, so, as always, Peter, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's great to have you again. Sure. So, let's just, without having to give the full picture, because I, I definitely think that our listeners can, can go and check out those other episodes that the two of us have done together, Let's talk about what might constitute an early attachment trauma or an early attachment wounding. What kinds of things would be the kind of thing that might stick with someone into their adult lives?
1: Well, you know, so many things from our past, from our deep, deep, long past do affect us. They don't affect, they don't affect us in ways that we're conscious of. I mean that's part of the problem, mm-hmm. big part of the problem, and I think attachment probably a little bit different than than most people do. I look more along a developmental arc about what happens to us from womb to to adolescence and the memories we carry. Now I said the memories are not conscious, but what are they? Well, we have to just take a couple of minutes to understand, at least comprehend. The different types of memory basically the, some memories are conscious are ex- explicit other memories are much more unconscious and those are called implicit memories and our basic attachments have to do with ex- uh, implicit memories it has very little to do with explicit memories and that's one of the reasons why I think probably therapists uh, often struggle in working with the early attachment wounds because they're so deeply ingrained in the body experience and, and can only really be accessed through the vehicle of sensations. And these sensations are very primitive sensations, very old, very raw. So if we look at implicit memories, there are basically two types. One type is emotional. So for example, if you're introduced to somebody for the first time, and all of a sudden you feel anger or fear or revulsion or wanting to avoid them, there's a good chance that this stems from earlier experience with somebody who had some of those same qualities. So they get triggered and then they explode in an emotional way. I mean, we all experience something like that at different times. As an example of a couple that's riding in their car and the wife is driving and they make a, a a wrong turn, and her husband starts yelling at her, don't you know where you are going? We're, and then, of course, they, he starts laughing, and they both start laughing. But for that moment, something in him, something in not being to the party at time or being lost, triggered some kind of a, an old engram, an old like, memory trace. I, I, sometimes I'm a little hesitant to use the word memory because these memories are so different than the conscious explicit memories. Okay, then even deeper than the emotional memories, which again do have to do with our early experiences as well as our development over the lifespan, that the other type of memory is called procedural memory. And these are memories that happen in our bodies and they can be both positive and negative, depending a lot on what our early experiences were in the womb at birth and during the bonding process. And procedural memories very often are long-lasting, and I divide them into two categories. One are basic things that the body learns, such as, for example, teaching a child how to ride a bike. So the parent or an older sibling is by the side of the child and has their hands on the bicycle and they walk together and then run together, run and then the bicycle goes a little bit faster. And then just at that right moment, the parent lets go of the bike because they sense that the child is being able to balance themselves. And then the child rides off on the bicycle and wants to go on the bicycle every day for the next six months you know, because they're thrilled at that accomplishment. They now have a new memory, a new procedural memory, a new body memory. And that involves a lot of different things that the body does. So if the parent tried to explain to the child, well, if, if you bend over this way, your center of gravity will go off that way. So you'll have to turn the bicycle in that direction. It's just impossible. Right. But the body learns that quick, quick, quick. And once it's there, even with a memory like that, a positive memory like that, the child is, uh, it's, you would never forget how to ride a bicycle. That adage is is largely true. It really is. So uh, let me give you an example. And again, those memories can be positive, like learning to ride a bike or learning dance steps, or they can be highly negative. But let me give you an example. And it does introduce the relationship between attachment and, and these memories. Okay. God, no, no, I don't know. 25 years ago or so, I was uh, visiting my parents in New York City, in the Bronx. And so I had spent the day down in Manhattan going to museums, and I was coming back in the train, the D train, and the train was packed with men in similar suits with newspapers folded under their arms. But there was one particular person, I just, I didn't even see his face. There was just something about his posture that had a strange effect on me. And I felt a slight, slight expansion of my chest and a, a, a little bit of a warmth in my belly as I paid attention to my body sensations. Unbeknownst to me, in a way, I was having a memory, but certainly not a conscious memory because, you know, I hadn't been even, I, who knows, you know, why I was having this attachment. So anyhow, he, we both got off at the last stop. The crowds had thinned out, 205th Street. And I walked up to him, and the, the words came out of my mouth, out of my lips. I, I wasn't even consciously aware of saying them. I touched his arm, and I said, Arnold. And he looked at me, utterly perplexed and puzzled. And we just stayed there for a moment. And then I said, Arnold, you were in my first grade class with Ms. Campini. And well, I would say, I was gonna say, he was astonished, we were both astonished. <laughs> there is something that I knew him in this class many decades before, several decades before. Yet there was some attraction to that person because I, obviously I don't remember everybody who was in the class. He's <laughs> probably the only person I do remember that, uh, that was in my in my first grade, great class. I mean, I do remember bullies. And I was very bullied at the time because I came in. I was younger. I came in in the middle of the class time, the middle of the semester. And I had my ears were the same size then as they are now. So kids teased me about and called me Dumbo. And so I was bullied a lot. Mm. And Arnold was one child that seemed to support me, that seemed to care about me. Wow. And it wasn't even verbal support. It was some time. I just felt him some way, somehow on my side. So that implicit procedural memory is something that I've carried forth for the rest of my life. Hopefully our early attachment figures have something like that so that when we are meeting another person for, in terms of cultivating or being in a relationship or navigating the vicissitudes relationship, that we have these positive memories which have to do with approach. Okay. Keep mm-hmm. that word in mind, approach. Okay. If on the other hand, we have had neglect, abuse, confusion, in our early experiences, we have procedural memories that are primary avoidance. Hopefully, 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 the positive experiences, the approach experiences are much greater than the avoidance experiences because that's what we need for healthy relationships. So, okay, anyhow, let's look at some of the kinds of things that happen early in our experiences. So hopefully the approach Uh, procedural memories outweigh the, uh, the avoidance one. But again, starting way, way back, our experiences in utero. You know, if the mother is in a relaxed state, which again is a good reason why hopefully mothers are able to spend certainly the later part of their pregnancy at home doing things they enjoy to do, settling, resting, preparing. However, if the mother is under a lot of stress, accumulated stress during that period, particularly the later part of gestation, um, that stress through different channels is actually passed on to the fetus. It does this by certain chemicals that are released when the mother is under stress, but also direct neural mechanisms that, that increase or decrease the blood flow to the placenta itself. So the placenta increases level of carbon dioxide, less oxygen, which stresses the fetal nervous system and overstimulates it. And then what often happens, and these studies were done in animals, of course, is that you have this tremendously increase in the activity of the whole brain, but then after a certain point, it just shuts down. And... So again, here already, we're hopefully having positive uh, implicit experiences, but we also might be having negative ones. Then birth, of course, is the next stage here in development. And my sense is that the, the utilization of midwives and doulas is a little bit starting to come back, taking the Birth process out of the realm of a of a disease that needs to be you know dealt with uh, medically right to uh, part of a natural process but anyhow and so during that time again the, the 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 fetus the newborn can be extremely stressed but here's the here's the the hopeful part because the parents the caregivers can also soothe the distress of the, of the infant after it's born, can really hold it, rock it, soothe it patiently. So again, it's getting a positive imprint, a positive memory of being able to be helped out of the distressed state into a state of, of relaxation. Because remember, an infant cannot regulate itself if it's distressed it has precious little in the way of being able to 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 come down from that activation and settle and calm itself it needs to be the term used often is co-regulated by the caregiver Mm -hmm. so by holding soothing singing gently rocking all of those kinds of things helps the newborn regulate again. Yeah. Go ahead. So
0: there are a couple things that are jumping out at me. One of them being that from the youngest moments of our existence, we are creating memories that are, that are not the kind of memory that you would typically think about, you know, where you can picture a story in your head of something happening. These are, actual body memories and emotional experiences that just live within us and can be evoked in the present but they don't necessarily uh, they're not necessarily something that have a story attached to them that you would consciously remember yes and then the second piece that's popping into place for me is around How So there are all these things that are just kind of happening to us when we're in the womb. And then when we come out and are born, there's this additional component where we're associating these really intense visceral experiences in our neurobiology with our primary caregivers. So with our primary attachment figures, and I can already see this kind of setting up. What plays out in in our future selves when we are actually entering partnership with others? So we create attachments as adults with right. the people who are who we can be most vulnerable with, most cared for, um, most caring to, etc. But it's like or setting, or the opposite, right? Or, or opposite. exactly, good point, good point. And memory being what it is, just the presence of these people will naturally evoke some of these early memories. And then if we're not aware that that's happening, it's clear that that could create all sorts of problem um, because you might think that it's something specifically about your partner that is evoking this particular sensation. You might not know you're having a memory. You might think whatever they just did is absolutely disgusting and 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 revolting. And whereas you're really actually having a memory. And I'm wondering, as an adult, how do we how do we begin to tease apart the two? Or is it not even really important to do that? Maybe it's more important to just think about how we process those experiences so that they're not impacting us quite so uh, profoundly.
1: Well, actually, let me go back to um, to baby time. Yeah, let's go back. Before we go to adulthood. And this is this is actually an example uh, of work with a 14 month old. And the uh, the session is is um, described and along with photographs in in my most recent book, Trauma and Memory brain and body in the search for the living past. So again, it's how the past lives within us. Anyhow, baby Jack was born of an extremely traumatic birth. The cord was uh, uh, three to- it was around his neck three times. At the last minute, he turned to breech. And he had, the more the mother tried to push, the more that Jack tried to propel against the, the uterine wall, he became more and more wedged the apex of the uterus, so in other words oh maybe uh, some people don't know that actually the birth process itself um is not just about the mother pushing the the baby out but the baby actually pushing itself out wow, so the more Jack pushed, the more he got webbed, the more he got uh, stuck in you know in the in the um uh, effects of the uterus and so they did an emergency cesarean as his heart rate was starting to go down significantly and even so they still couldn't pull him out so they used suction to pull him out and you see this is a very traumatic birth and he was suffering from some physical symptoms which would have required that they do endoscopes and also uh, looking into his lungs a, 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 a procedure which would have certainly really adding tremendous amount of traumatization to this, for, to this infant, which has already been highly traumatized, So the baby has been highly traumatized. So I start to work with him. And again, in, you'll see the, the pictures in the book, but I, I, I take some rat, uh, rattles that were made for me by a Hopi person, and I rattle them a little bit to get his attention. And he's he's an alert person, uh, but his mother says he never will, you know, uh, stay still. He'll never just, you know, stay on her lap and mold into her. She never had that experience with him. So she said, he'll may come over, but then he's off to the next thing. So again, and, and she says, oh, and he can be okay when he's alone. So again, you see this thing in relationships. When we're alone, we're, we, we perceive ourselves to be okay. But then when we're in relationship with somebody, we can lose all of that. So anyhow, he reaches for the rattle as I hand it towards him. And then he retracts his, hand, his arm and just it goes limp. And so he is now having a memory He cannot talk about this memory, because he doesn't really have words. And even if he could, they wouldn't be the words that would work. So then um, I give the the rattle to him again, and this time he pushes against the rattle. And I say, yeah, that's great, Jack. You know, because he had all—he was taken away. He had all these tubes, all these you know procedures that were done, and uh, he fit, he was helpless. He was this little teeny baby, and all of these you know giants were doing these things towards him. So, anyhow, we continue with this, and at one point, I put my hand on his middle back because I see that's where he stiffens when his mother starts talking about needing to. The the doctor's wanting to do an endoscopy. So anyhow, this time he pushes against her leg, really pushes, and he propels as though he was propelling himself through the birth canal, as though. But really he was. Anyhow, after that, he just starts crying and crying and crying. It just birth cry sounds. And his mother is just astonished. She said, I've almost never heard him cry. Mm. And I've never seen tears coming down, the tears coming from his eyes. And you can see it's both a combination of amazement and relief. And she doesn't even quite know what that relief is about. Then, at the end of this crying, there's deep, spontaneous breaths. Deep, spontaneous rest. And he just positions himself so he can mold into the mother's shoulder. And then she knows exactly what to do now. She puts her arm around him and gently holds him. And you see them attaching. So it wasn't that she was a bad mother that prevented the attachment that wasn't the case. It was that they got disconnected at birth. She was definitely in Winnicott's terms, a good enough mother, very caring mother. But again, you see, and and you can see it in the pictures, her complete delight at him doing this. And then they come in the next week for a checkup and his mother says, oh. when, uh, uh, when we got home, Jack went to sleep and then at one o'clock in the morning he called out, mama, mama, and see she came in and picked him up and he molded again right into her arm, right into her shoulders. So this here is a is a definitely implicit memory. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be positive. But what if nothing had been done at that had been done at that time? Then you can certainly project ahead and probably have a pretty good guess that he is going to have difficulties in relationships, that he's going to have difficulty in getting really close in bonding and attaching. So by being able to change that memory from the time of of his birth, um, that really made it much more possible for him to have secure attachments in other later relationships. So even in this case, uh, in a case like this, where there has been trauma around the birth and around early attachment, we are still able to work with those memories they may not be as accessible as they were with baby Jack, but, but at the same time, we can use language and imagery to help the person connect with those procedural memories and to transform them, to transmute them from negative ones, which were dominating Jack, to positive ones of approach. And again, we want a relationship. A relationship is not going to be able to really survive unless there's much more approach memories than avoidance memories. But again, these things can be shifted even in our adulthood. But they will come up in in, uh, close relationships. And if we have had those uh, difficult experience, negative experience, if we were neglected. You know, when I was born, uh, the the medical wisdom at the time was first of all, give the mother all kinds of drugs, and then when you're and and do not breastfeed, because breastfeeding was unsanitary. I mean, oh I mean can you imagine how archaic that was? And to add insult to injury, they also instructed parents not to pick not to pick up their babies when the babies were crying because the babies would just use that to manipulate them. Right. I mean, you know, I mean? You think about that. That's, um, that's abuse <sighs> really as we understand today, but that was the, that was the, that was the understanding of the time, the wisdom at the time. So anyhow, when people from my generation were crying and upset, we weren't held. And so that's the memory that we carry, that when we're upset, we will not be able to calm. So we're, if we're upset in adult relationship, we do not expect to be calmed. And we won't even allow ourselves to be calmed. So we either avoid the relationship or become over-dependent in the relationship to soothe us because we're unable to be soothed and again one of the things that we teach in somatic experiencing is to help people learn this is part of working with these procedural memories to have people learn to be able to regulate themselves and for couples to learn how to regulate each other because there's a pretty good chance that if you're dysregulated you will find a dysregulated person to um to be in relationship with or or opposite
0: yeah um so wow there are so many things jumping out at me right now and i i definitely obviously we're we're not going to go through the whole body of work of somatic experiencing right now i i do hope that we can offer our listeners a few things they can do when they notice these things coming out um i i can all your books that I've read have been such a revelation to me. And in particular, when it comes to applying, uh, your work, there's a, a rather thin book called Healing Trauma that we've spoken about before. Um, that I think is just so great because it offers like a whole sequence of exercises that people can work through. Um, that, that take you on this journey of, of uncovering, uh, these implicit memories and, and uh, unearthing them and being able to resolve them in the moment, like you were describing, resolving um, or the resolution of your work with that with Baby Jack. Um, right. When you were describing the ways that your generation was, um, or that your parents were taught to to care for your generation when you were born, it made me also think about the way that trauma is passed from generation to generation because what i think happened to a lot of people in my generation was that their parents were you know the product of this whole you know don't don't breastfeed the baby don't pick up the baby and then when when they were presented with a baby that was crying or inconsolable even if they had a different sense maybe of like oh i'm supposed to be doing this differently or differently than my parents did it's evoking all of these implicit memories for my parents um and which makes it much more challenging for them to show up as a regulating force for their children yeah yeah
1: yeah well or sometimes um their parents will try to do the opposite of what they had experienced and so there's another key feature here which is also important is that absolutely you know for the first several some months after birth the child basically has to be held and rocked uh, when it's upset. But then, you know, starting after several months into like nine months or so, um, it's also important that the, to, because once the child has they had enough solid procedural mem- memories, experience of being calm, being settled, then it is important to at least allow for the child to be upset for some amount of time so that they can also bring in their capacity, their gradually learned capacity to self-regulate. And often uh, parents who come where they were not picked up and, and where they were just left in this this, this swamp of distress, they may um, have trouble to not immediately pick up their the baby when it's crying and then immediately hold it. So sometimes those children don't develop the uh, 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 full enough capacity for self-regulation, which also can be problematic in later relationships because of course we're going to be upset with things that are, that our spouses do, our partners do. But the question is, do we have tools so that we don't just go into profound distress and despair every time Something happens that upsets us. So we do need to have both. But I think I just mentioned this, the capacity to regulate and to co-regulate and uh, to get some of these skills the the book that you mentioned, book CD actually by Sounds True called Healing Trauma, something like a pioneering program for healing trauma. I don't know. But anyhow,
0: a pioneering program for restoring the wisdom of your body.
1: Ah, That's it. Okay. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Peter, we need to take a quick break to mention today's sponsor. Their name is Cove, and they have a special offer for you. Cove is on a mission to make migraines less of a headache. Anyone who's had a migraine headache knows that they're the absolute worst. And now it's a little easier to treat your condition from the comfort of your own home, thanks to Cove. Migraines are personal to you, therefore, every treatment plan that they offer is also personalized. From the convenience of your own home, a doctor reviews your symptoms and determines what the best course of treatment is for you. This is a doctor who's licensed in your own home state, who will oversee your monthly prescription and oversee your progress. Your personalized supply of FDA-approved medication, both Acute medication and preventative is delivered directly to your door. And the first month is free. No medical insurance necessary. So if you suffer from migraine headaches, the last thing you need is to wait to see a doctor. With Cove, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. Again, for a limited time, get your first month of medication free. Visit withcove.com slash alive that's w-i-t-h-c-o-v-e dot com slash alive for a personalized consult with a doctor and your first month of migraine medication free and thank you cove for sponsoring this episode of relationship alive so now let's get back to our conversation with peter levine
1: so again some of the exercises where we learn to regulate states of arousal of fear, of anger, so that we don't have to constantly rely, rely on the other person. But at the same time, a healthy relationship also involves um, co-regulation, particularly, hopefully, when we're able to say, and, and this, may, this is a kind of a higher state, dear, I'm really feeling so, uh, unsettled and anxious. Um, could you please just hold me for a little bit? And then, the, if the other, if the other partner is in the, in a co- relatively rounded, calm place themselves, then they most likely will want to offer that. So again, it's a combination of co-regulation, uh, transmuting into or developing into the capacity to self-regulate, and then as adolescents and adults to be able to switch between self-regulation and Mm co-regulation. And so again, we are in a sense transforming these procedural memories where we did not have positive experience of being co-regulated or we didn't develop the capacity to self-regulate.
0: So how would I know if I'm having an experience where where it would make sense for me to check in with my partner, let's say, and ask for some co-regulation, what kinds of experiences would I be having within me that might be an indication of like, oh, wait, that's the... so when, when someone hears this, they'll be like, oh, that's the thing that Peter Levine was talking about. And look, I'm experiencing that right now. Maybe I should go ask my, my partner if they'll hold me for a minute and see what happens.
1: Right. Well, guess what? Um, it's absolutely not... It's not going to happen at once. At once. It's, it's a skill that one has to really, really build. But the basic idea is that when we become upset, become emotional, become angry, become fearful, become sad, that's out of proportion to what's happening here in the present. Then that's a almost certain guarantee, I would say it's a certain guarantee that we're dealing with some kind of imprinted procedural memory, a negative memory. And uh, so while we're in the midst of it, it's going to be harder to ask for help. But if we know how to to self-regulate ourselves even a little bit, then we can realize, okay, I'm upset, but I'm upset so much more than, you know, than my partner saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to get together tomorrow because I have to work uh, for dinner, I have to work later at work. okay, so really upset. But if that child had been abandoned as an as a, as a baby, then all of a sudden that abandonment comes in, and for an infant, being abandoned will cause death if the if the baby is abandoned for a, uh, enough time, right And so we will experience this this perceived rejection as a life threat. Okay, so again, if we know enough about our implicit memories, we can then be able to kind of soothe ourselves, and I give exercises for that, to soothe ourselves and then to be able to enter back into the relationship. But it's a skill that really needs to be developed, and good therapy, good both couples and individual therapy, can really help to facilitate this kind of cooperation between, uh, between our, our relationships, our primary relationships as adults.
0: Yeah. And I, I've mentioned it on the, on the show before. And I think when, when you were on, maybe the first time you were on, we, we went over the VU, um, mm-hmm exercise and um that's something that chloe and i um we do together all the time when we're when we notice one or the other being in a dysregulated state to help us come back into balance with each other it's super helpful yeah
1: yeah yeah, absolutely absolutely i mean there are a number of exercises like the vu exercise like the self-holding exercise um awareness, bringing one's awareness uh, to the parts of our body which are not feeling horrifically. (laughs) And so that could be our our hands or our feet even. So again, there's a number of different exercises that we can learn from and learn how to uh, self-regulate enough. You know, there's a, a, a Motown song that goes something like It takes one to stand in the dark alone. It takes two to let the light shine through. So I think, again, it's this combination of being responsible for our own uh, uh, implicit memories, our own emotional and procedural memories, but also to be cognizant about them, enough so that we can enter into co-regulation. And that co-regulation really enhances the attachment, the adult attachment, and secures that relationship, solidifies that relationship, builds it into a positive experience. So, you know, again, a lot of times all these things that happen to us can have these different effects that really will disrupt the relationship. Let me give you one example. I was working with this uh, woman, young woman, who was abused by a sports coach uh, when she was 13 years old. And because she was a teenager, she thought that he was in love with her. She certainly was in love, whatever that means, with him. And then she was rejected by him. Anyhow, those were really uh, procedural memories. So when her husband would try to touch her she would go into anger or revulsion and just want to push him away so and of course he was deeply deeply upset because he had no idea what to do so i had worked with her to do a few sessions and then suggested that they would come in together and they were sitting as far away as possible from each other and um, they talked about their resentments that he never gives me eye contact, she never gives me eye contact. And so they were talking about wanting to make contact, but they couldn't do it. So a- after this went on for thirty minutes, uh, where they were basically blaming each other, I asked if they would be able, to be willing to try an experiment. And I said, "This is a there's a risk at this. I mean." Hopefully this will help, but it, it, it might not. Are you willing to take that risk? And they both said yes. So then I, he, I had him, where he was sitting, and then I had her, kind I explain this both to them, sit with her back towards him and kind of having his, uh, his, uh, his knee uh, a little bit like touching her shoulder so she could feel this contact but it didn't demand eye contact and it was touching in a relatively in a relatively safe way and so at first i could see they you know they were felt very awkward and i encouraged them just to keep noticing their body sensations and maybe just report them out loud and they did that for a while and then for the first time she could say that she felt some safety with her husband. Mm. But otherwise, it was all threat and confusion, the confusion of this 13-year-old adolescent. So again, all of these things will affect our attachments profoundly. But the good news is there are things that we can do about that. So again, I I hope I'm not pitching too much. But (laughs) I, I, I really do. Recommend that people, even if they're not therapists, read trauma and memory because it really helps to explain the nature of all of these memories so we have a better idea of the map of where we are and also the understanding of when we're hyper uh, activated or when we're shut down, which I cover deeply in uh, in an unspoken voice so and then, of course, the one that you mentioned. So all of these really talk about a map to know where we are. What, it, if we're, if we're f- angry with a person, there's energy in that. We can more easily work with that. But what happens if when the, we're with the person, our whole organism shuts down and goes into a protective shell where we can't easily be reached? Then we have to help the person come out of that shutdown into a more activated state and then learn to regulate, co regulate that state and then to learn to self-regulate
0: that state. I know that's a mouthful and putting in it in at the end. But, um, but <laughs> yeah. It, way it, to drop the like, bomb. Uh, Peter. you know, uh, I'm curious when, uh, maybe you could offer something then. So, cause I think it's so common for a partner when they feel their, um, beloved shutting down in some sense, to not really know what to do in that moment, to not yeah. know how to how to speak to them or how to respond in a way. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. what yeah. would the invitation cool. be there?
1: So sometimes, you know, instead of like being like confronting each other uh, indoors uh, to, or at least, I mean, even indoors, but hopefully outdoors if the weather is clement, um, is to just walk together side by side and talk instead of. Trying to face each other, which is bringing up a lot of those difficult emotions. And when you're walking, you're less likely to shut down. So that's the first thing I would recommend: is don't. If you if if things are stuck, just walk together side by side, because there's something just in that gesture, side by side, which is supportive, which is caring, Mm. caring that the person can actually experience. Then I'll. Uh, suggest doing some of the exercises, like the VU exercise, you know, the long, easy, sustained VU, directing it from the belly. And that's one way of helping people both come out of shutdown or if they're in a hyper state to calm the hyper state. So I'll suggest that they do the exercise and maybe especially do them together so that they feel more settled And in this more settled place, they're able to engage each other much more in the here and now rather than in the there and then. So again, that's why I use the term brain and body in a search for the living past, how the past lives within us and what we can do about it, how we can change the past so that we can be in the present. And when two people are in the present with each other who care about each other, that solidifies the bond Mm. and takes it out Mm -hmm. of the realm of things like adaptations like codependency
0: right and gets them into that space where they can they can re-experience those memories but metabolize them into something positive where they're feeling like oh i i'm experiencing that but my partner is here to support me, like now I know what it's like to actually feel supported in this family exactly.
1: exactly, and again, when we're able to cultivate in the relationship to the degree we're able to do that, we're solidifying the relationship
2: mm.
1: because difficult times will happen I mean there is no i don't know of any relationships where where crises have never occurred some kind it can be a small crisis, but it can also be a really big crisis. So the question is, are we fortified enough? Have we built the foundation of our relationship somatically so that when these things do occur, we're able to weather them and co-regulate each other? And I'm thinking sometimes of something that's really devastating, like when a child dies or gets seriously ill, that's a time really that the parents need to co-regulate each other. Mm -hmm. But it's also the time where there's a tendency to distance or to blame rather than to connect.
0: Right. Right. Those are the moments where you need each other more than ever, really. More than
1: ever. But again, if we've solidified that up to that point, then the chances of us getting through that are greatly enhanced.
0: Yeah, makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense, and and I could see, you know, for instance, even just with something as simple as taking a walk and doing the vuu together, um, that doing that in uh, in times that aren't uh, dysregulated, that it's setting the stage for that just becoming something that you can rely on in a challenging moment.
1: You know, many people, many couples, many individuals are recorded when they did that. With their partner, the walking, the vooing, that kind of thing. They were really angry and fearful and blaming. And they just walked for a while and did the voo. And then both of them started spontaneously laughing and laughing and laughing and crying and laughing. <laughs> and then just kind of both seeing the ridiculousness of those of that reaction, but also the appreciation for the other.
0: Mm. So yeah, I can relate. And it's so important too, I think, because when you're stuck in, a, in an old memory, um, that translates often into thoughts, the kinds of thoughts like that I'm, you're not safe with this person or that they're out to get you. And, and, but the feelings actually precede the thoughts. So if you're able to tackle your somatic experience, that feeling in your body, then the thoughts shift. Right. The
1: emotions precede the thoughts and the procedural memories are what's uh, also uh, evoking the emotional memories. Yeah. So, again, in somatic experiencing, we do a lot of work from the bottom up, from sensations, then to affects, then to new meanings. Mm -hmm. And so that couple had the new meaning like, oh, my gosh. I don't have to feel so alone when i'm feeling angry or fearful i just need to ask for some kind of connection such as what we were just mentioning yeah so again these are tools i hope that couples all know and practice a bit so that when they really when it's really called upon that it'll be there and again my experience is that can really determine in a crisis time whether people whether couples stay together work together stay together cooperate together or whether they split
0: right well peter thank you again for all your time and wisdom and you know the years and years of dedication to uh unearthing ways to heal from traumas that happened to us before we even were aware of them and your work is so important, I think, to uh, finding ourselves again and again in the present, especially when we're in partnership and, you know, evoking each other's uh, deep emotional experience all over right. the place and Stop. hopefully <laughs> hopefully, healing together yeah. as well. Yeah. Before we go, there's some work that's a little tangential to this conversation, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to mention it because it's so important that um has to do with the ways that the effects of stored trauma unprocessed trauma in our bodies results in chronic illness and and i know you've been hard at work on ways to help people through that um would you mind taking a moment to just talk about what that is and oh yeah yeah yeah
1: i'm gladly because that's something that really really excited really turns me on it over the years some 40-plus years. Um, I've probably worked with thousands of people who have had what would now be called conditions like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, uh, severe PMS, migraines, urinary problems, and so forth. And um, working with them uh, with with SE has been quite effective. And these are conditions that don't have a medical diagnosis. They're now uh, called sometimes in medicine MUS, medically unexplained symptoms, MUS. There's no help for many. I mean, some people do have something organically wrong, of course, and that has to be eliminated. But many of these people are just thrown from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist with, you know, with no help. And, you know, even after the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, I think in 1982, 94, 84, uh, still very, very few physicians understood that. But certainly almost nobody understood that it was not something that was just in a person's Ahead, but these are functional disorders involving our stress responses, basically. So, you know, thinking about that, there are probably at least 10 or 20 million people suffering in the U.S. alone with those kind of symptoms. And there's no amount of therapists, I mean, that could really help all of these people. And many of the people can't really afford therapists and so forth. And they really need something that they can use, even if they are doing therapy, to be a adjunctive supportive therapy. So along with, um, with a project uh, manager, an, an entrepreneur, and um, uh, an MIT specialist in computer human interaction affective communication, and then three other programmers, we've been working for, in the last two and a half years on this program, be a program or an app that people can use at home to help them heal those kinds of symptoms. Uh, And we'll be finally testing the first version of that in the next couple of months. So I'm both also, I'm excited, but I'm also a little bit like anxious, a little trepidation, you know, like putting in all this work and and I, and, and I know it's going to help. I mean, we did a proof of concept at the very beginning, and it, it had very powerful effect. But anyhow, that's, that's really where my a lot of my energy is right now. It's in, in, in continuing to develop that as we start getting feedback from the first, or actually the second test group. So if you want to be glad to let you know when we're up and about,
0: Definitely. And we can we can send a blast out to everyone on our email list about that. And uh and your assistant, Melissa, who is such a blessing, she also wanted me to mention that if if you send an email to ergoslevine at gmail.com and that's spelled ergos. Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, at gmail.com, then, um, then they can let you know. And there's maybe even a chance that that those people can get involved in the testing of that app as well, it sounds like. Um, yeah. So, and, and of course, you're always out teaching and um, mm-hmm. people can uh, participate in your public courses. Um, yeah. There are some on the East Coast in the fall. There's a course in yeah, London in yeah. June. Um, and if they visit, is it somaticexperiencing.com, then they can sort of see everything so. that you're doing. I believe so. I believe so.
1: Well, Peter, some of the stuff I'm doing, yeah.
0: Peter, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I've so enjoyed your generosity of, of time and wisdom over the years. And uh, thanks so much again for, um, for yeah. dropping in with us here on Relationship sure. Live. And uh, as just a reminder, if you want a transcript, of this conversation and also uh, the relevant links and things, you can visit neilsatin.com slash levine2, that's L-E-V-I-N-E and the number two. Uh, Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions uh, where you'll be able to download the complete transcript of our conversation. All right, thanks again.